gold standard. Welcome to the Dr. Hedberg Show for cutting-edge practical health information. For the latest articles, videos, and podcasts, visit drhedberg.com. That's D-R-H-E-D-B-E-R-G.com. The information in this show is intended for educational purposes only. Always consult your healthcare professional before attempting anything recommended in this program. And now, here's Dr. Hedberg. Well, welcome everyone to the Dr. Hedberg Show. This is Dr. Hedberg, and I'm very excited today to have Dr. Terry Walls on the show. So, Dr. Walls is a clinical professor of medicine at the University of Iowa. She's the author of the book, The Walls Protocol, How I Beat Progressive MS Using Paleo Principles and Functional Medicine, and also the cookbook, The Walls Protocol, Cooking for Life, The Revolutionary Modern Paleo Plan to Treat All Chronic Autoimmune Conditions. You can learn more about her work from her website. It's terrywalls.com. That's T E. R-R-Y-W-A-H-L-S.com. And she hosts the Walls Protocol Seminar every August, where anyone can learn how to implement the protocol with ease and success. And she's on social media. You can find her on Facebook at Terry Walls MD, Instagram, Dr. Terry Walls, and on Twitter at Terry Walls. And you can learn more about her MS clinical trials by reaching out to her team. Via this email, it's msdietstudy at healthcare.uiowa.edu. And I will paste that uh, link and email on drhedberg.com in case you want to contact her that way. So, Dr. Walls, welcome to the show. Hey, thank you so much for having me. Great. So, just for the people out there who don't really know your story, can you tell us a little bit about? what you went through and, and your MS story? Uh, sure. So I'm an academic internal medicine doc, uh, very conventionally trained and conventionally practicing, uh, being very skeptical of diets, supplements, complementary alternative medicine. Uh, but God has a way of uh, teaching us. So in, in 2000, I was diagnosed with uh, relapsing remitting multiple sclerosis on the basis of a history of dim vision 13 years earlier and a new problem with my left leg. I had lesions in my uh, spinal cord. I, and so I knew I wanted to see the best people in the country, take the newest drugs. Uh, and so I went to the Cleveland Clinic and saw their best people, took the newest drugs, and steadily declined. I'd had uh, one relapse in the next year involving my uh, right hand. Uh, and, and that uh, and I continued to de gradually decline. By 2003, I had uh, declined enough that I now needed a tilt recline wheelchair. I uh, took mitoxantrone. I adopted, uh, yeah, actually the year earlier, the paleo diet after being a vegetarian for 20 years. Uh, but as I already mentioned, I continued to decline and was in the wheelchair. Took mitoxantrone, uh, continued to decline, then took tizabri continued to decline, and then was placed on Salsept. And at that point, to 2004, it's uh, quite clear to me that I'm uh, likely to become bedridden, quite possibly demented, and quite possibly uh, suffer from intractable pain related to uh, poorly controlled trigeminal neuralgia. 
Uh, and so I start reading uh, the basic science again, and I'd begin experimenting using a variety of supplements targeting my mitochondria. And what I discover is that I, my fatigue is somewhat less, the speed of my decline is slowed, uh, and I'm really immensely grateful because I'm just, because now my docs have told me I have secondary progressive MS, that there's no more spontaneous recoveries. I, and so I, I'm grateful just to slow my decline. Now, uh, the summer of 07, I'm so weak, I, I cannot sit up anymore. I have a, a zero-gravity chair uh, where my knees are higher than my nose. I uh, staff resident clinics uh, there. I uh, work in the Institutional Review uh, Board, reviewing research protocols that way. And I have another chair at home. Uh, and it's getting more and more difficult uh, to function. My chief of staff tells me that he's reassigning me to the traumatic brain injury clinic come January. And I, I realize what he's really doing is putting me in a circumstance where I'll have to finally take medical retirement because that's a job that I won't be able to do. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, things look very bleak in the summer of 2007. Um, but that summer, I discover electrical stimulation of muscles, and I get my physical therapist to add that to my uh, exercise program. And I discover the Institute for Functional Medicine. And I take their course on neuroprotection, which, by the way, is pretty tough in the midst of my brain fog. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I get through that. I have a longer list of supplements. Uh, and then in, in the fall of 07, I have this really um, you know, radical idea that you know, I should be redesigning my paleo diet uh, based on the supplements that I was taking to maximize those particular nutrients. And if I uh, redid my diet that way, I'd probably pick up more supplemental nutrients that we haven't even identified yet that are really going to be helpful for my brain. So that's more research. It takes a few months to get that figured out. And uh, I remember December 26th, uh, I'm really starting uh, this new way of eating. I, and so the middle of January, I now go to the traumatic brain injury clinic. That first week, I'm just watching my colleagues uh, you know, run the clinic. Then the next week, so now I've had a month of my new eating plan. I, and I've had a couple months of the e-stem. And I discover that actually I can do this task. I can uh, you know, drive my wheelchair to the clinic. Uh, and stand up, uh, examine folks, sit down, make their notes. And at the end of the week, I'm like, well, actually, I could do that. Uh, And I was quite surprised. Uh, The end of three months, I'm beginning to walk around the hospital with a cane. And at six months, I'm walking around the hospital without a cane. Uh, At nine months, you know, and I I would say I'm still just taking each day at a time. I don't really know what this means because... I fully accepted that progressive MS is progressive, that there's no recovery that's possible. And so I'm not sure what this stuff means. Uh, and then at nine months, I uh, get on my bike, and it's the first time I've tried to do that in over six years, and I bike around the block. Uh, you know, my, my kids are crying, my wife is crying, I'm crying, uh, and that's when it's very clear to me that the conventional understanding of progressive multiple sclerosis, and probably relapsing remitting multiple sclerosis is incomplete. Uh, And then 
uh, at 12 months, I do a 20-mile bike ride with my family. So this really changes how I'm thinking about disease and health. It changes how I'm practicing in my primary care clinics with the residents and in the traumatic brain injury clinic. Uh, And so I'm I am focusing more and more on diet and lifestyle. And of course, this would ultimately change uh, the focus of my uh, research as well. Mm -hmm. So quite a story. So now there had to have been a a period where when you first got the diagnosis, uh, were you, do you think that that was a a traumatic experience for you getting that and experiencing (laughs) it? And and how did you deal with with the trauma? of finding out you had MS? Well, you know, before I, I entered medical school, uh, I was an athlete. Uh, I did uh, some long distance running and I was a black belt uh, in Taekwondo. In fact, I competed nationally in full contact free sparring, uh, getting a bronze medal in the national uh, competition for uh, the Pan American trials. So uh, I was always valued physical activity uh, and athletic activity. Uh, even during medical school and with my kids, we were physically very, very active. Uh, and so when I was diagnosed, um, uh, that was difficult. Uh, and part of me was relieved, like, okay, I'm, I'm not being a slug after all. This explains why my workouts had been getting steadily more difficult. So there's part of me that was relieved that way. Um, and then being sort of the... Uh, uh, you know, very ambitious uh, individual. Once I was diagnosed, I did what many physicians do. I started reading the scientific literature. And that's when I saw that, you know, within uh, 10 years of diagnosis, a third will need um, a, a wheelchair, walker, or a cane. And one half will be unable to work due to severe fatigue. I, and so I was just getting more and more upset my uh, wife sat me down and said, you know, Terry, you got, you got to stop reading the literature. It's just getting you upset. We'll find the best people in the country. Let them take care of you. You know, and actually that's part of how I, you know, sought out the Cleveland Clinic and gave them all of my uh, uh, responsibility and let go of reading the literature. Mm-hmm. Uh, but then as I was getting steadily worse, despite seeing the best people, despite taking the newest drugs, and I'm having to reimagine myself first as no longer an athlete, then as no longer able to do the activities of daily life and contribute to, you know, the various uh, family responsibilities. Uh, and uh, having to reimagine, like, you know, how am I going to teach my kids uh, resilience and um, uh, fortitude, perseverance? I thought I was going to be doing that by teaching them athletics and wilderness travel, but that was no longer possible. I, and so uh, those were very challenging times because I had to keep reimagining who I was and how I could contribute to family life, how I could contribute to my children's uh, growth. Mm-hmm. Right. And this was a huge transition, obviously, with your conventional medical training, learning about functional medicine and, and nutrition, and you're doing that in your clinics now. Have you, and you talked a little bit about this at IFM, can you tell everyone just kind of the pushback that you've oh, had sure. from conventional medicine? Sure, sure. You know, so 
my my colleagues are just thrilled to see me suddenly walking around again. Uh, uh, and so they're very excited. Uh, my uh, uh, chair of medicine uh, is so impressed. And he's actually a rheumatologist. So he gives me the job of getting a case report written. Uh, and I go like on myself. I said, yes, yes, this is such so important. Work with your treating uh, medical team and get it written up. So I salute and uh, we get that done. Uh, and uh, of course, during that time period, I'm also um, you know, changing how I practice, talking less and less about drugs, more and more about diet and lifestyle. And the next thing I know, my uh, partners are, are complaining about me because I'm, I'm doing such <clears throat> bizarre things. Uh, so my chief of staff at the VA calls me in and says, Terry, what's going on? People, I'm getting all these complaints. Um, so I have a long conversation with him. And then I have to come back and bring him all the papers. Uh, and uh, in the end, he uh, becomes impressed with me. And he tells the people who are complaining that, look, if uh, Dr. Walls, if anyone is harmed, she'll go through peer review just like everyone else, and then we'll deal with it. But right now, talking about vegetables and exercise and meditation is something we should all be doing. So he became supportive. Uh, then uh, the next uh, uh, bump that I encountered was, you know, I'm teaching in the public sphere uh, with, at the organic uh, grocer. I, I, and that's a very, very popular lecture. Then the local MS Society chapter wants to hear me you know, talk. And so I'm interviewed by the clinical advisory board. And, they, and they're very concerned that I'm going to create false hope. And so I'm banned as a speaker. Mm. So now I have to go back and meet with the chair of medicine and the chief of staff who are, who are very concerned that I'm a banned speaker. So we have to explain uh, all of that. Uh, you know, and actually that turned out to be uh, a blessing uh, for me because the uh, chair of medicine at the university had me meet with the uh, head of the complementary alternative medicine clinic and reviewed for me uh, how to carefully document in the medical record uh, and in my public spaces that when I'm doing public education, it's education uh, and I'm, it's, I'm, and it's not trying to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. I'm trying to help people with their wellness and to improve their cellular physiology. Mm-hmm. In my clinics, then I was very careful to document that this is not an FDA-approved treatment. Uh, this is an alternative approach to improving your physiology and wellness, and that will monitor for whatever effects it has on your health status. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, I, actually, as I learned to uh, talk a little more uh, carefully in the medical record and publicly, uh, that made my colleagues probably more comfortable. Uh, and then the other thing that helped was uh, my uh, chief of medicine uh, gave me the job of doing a, a, a pilot study to show uh, could this be replicated in others. And once we got that going, and I'm presenting that research that research uh, at every year's annual research week. And those results are coming in remarkably positive. Um, then you know, I gather more and more respect because people realize that I, I'm trying to do uh, real research, trying to investigate uh, these issues. Mm-hmm. 
Right. And so you had some, some pushback there for a while, but now you're doing your own research. So yes. is there anything you wanted to add there? Some more details oh, sure. into your, what kind of research you're doing? Oh, sure. So uh, the very first thing uh, that we did was, uh, and this took me a while, I, uh, to write out uh, the protocol uh, in a very structured way. What was the intervention that I used in terms of uh, the food eating plan, uh, the supplements, the stress reducing plan? the exercise and the e-stem. So we got that protocol written up, uh, got funding for that. Uh, of course, that was not easy, um, but we, we got the funding uh, and ran uh, the first 10. We were able to show that uh, those 10 did well, and then we were able to do the next 10. So we got 20 folks through that. Remarkably positive in terms of change on uh, uh, fatigue, which is uh, practically the most disabling problem for MS patients. So mm -hmm. big improvement on fatigue. Uh, big improvement in quality of life. Half of our folks had clinically meaningful improvement in walking function, uh, uh, which is remarkable with prog uh, a progressive phase of the illness. You expect a 10 to 25% decline every year. So that half have clinically meaningful improvement is really quite stunning. Uh, then the next study that we did uh, was a randomized weightless control. So people come in uh, and are randomized to either get instructed on just the study diet or they eat their usual diet and then they come back in 12 weeks and we repeat the uh, fatigue uh, severity scale score. Uh, and again, we're able to show that fatigue reduces in a clinically meaningful way and that motor function, uh, both hand function and walking function improves and quality of life improves. Uh, then the next study we did uh, was a look at, um, at the usual care versus uh, my original diet, the Walls diet, versus a ketogenic version of the Walls diet. Uh, and uh, we have, again, very exciting results there. Those results have been written up, and uh, they're under review, so I can't really say more than that, just that, you know, more exciting stuff. Uh, and then uh, the National Multiple Sclerosis Society, uh, and I, th I think influenced <clears throat> by uh, the fact that they monitor uh, the social media content uh, to know what their constituents are talking about. And after my book came out in 2014, there was really an explosion of uh, conversation about diet, uh, lifestyle, exercise, the Walls Protocol, Dr. Terry Walls. Uh, and so that led the MS Society to realize they needed to make diet and lifestyle uh, research and programming a much higher priority. Uh, so very exciting stuff. Uh, they put out a call for dietary intervention studies. We submitted a proposal and uh, were in fact funded uh, for a study. Uh, uh, again, uh, it's a dietary intervention study. We're comparing the low saturated fat swank diet to the Walls diet. Uh, we have, we'll be recruiting uh, through uh, the month of April, potentially into May, um, and we'll be analyzing the data uh, finally in 2020. And uh, so at the end of 2020, early 2021, we'll, we'll be able to have results that will be getting presented mm -hmm. uh, probably at uh, the, some of the international meetings. We're very, very excited about that. That's fantastic. This will really be the 
the first research out there uh, looking at these various diets and interventions on MS, I would assume. You know, it's, it's the first uh, big randomized controlled uh, trial. Swank had a, 144 patients he filed for 50 years, but they were not randomized. You don't know what happened to the folks who dropped out. Uh, so there's the strength of his study is he's got a big number that he followed for a long time, the weaknesses. Uh, uh, we, we don't know what happened to the dropouts, uh, and it's not randomized. Mm -hmm. uh, in my little studies, we're all uh, relatively small. So this, this will be a huge, huge um, uh, dietary study for everyone with MS and really for uh, autoimmune issues because no one's doing randomized uh, controlled dietary intervention studies in any other autoimmune issues either. Mm -hmm. Exactly. So before we get into the, the details of the WALS protocol and the diet, why don't we lay a little bedrock for the listeners as far as where we are with the known causes of MS. So we know there's, sure. there's a genetic component. There's usually some gut issues. There are yeah. infections like Epstein-Barr virus, uh, toxins. Where are we with the latest research on the triggers and, and the causes of MS? So if, if we look at the research, the epidemiology is uh, really quite clear. Uh, and say the science would say there's 200 to maybe 300 uh, genes that we have identified that increase your risk slightly. Uh, the vast majority of these genes will increase your risk, oh, half a percent, one percent, maybe two percent. So the majority of folks with that gene don't get MS. There are a few genes that are much more powerful uh, and will uh, really increase your risk, maybe uh, 10 to 20 percent. Mm -hmm. uh, always there's this complicated interaction between your genetic vulnerability and um, all of your environmental factors. So that we've known that for quite some time and we're getting, just getting a little bit more clear uh, as to uh, which genes have a higher risk and which have a lower risk. Then in terms of environmental factors, uh, there's more research coming out that toxic exposures increase your risk. Uh, so solvents, uh, mercury, heavy metals, uh, if you've been exposed to those, that increases the probability that you'll have uh, MS. Uh, we've also known that uh, there's a variety of infection agents, infectious agents, that appear to increase the probability. But again, not everyone who gets these infections, you know, develops uh, multiple sclerosis. But, you know, um, in the fact that there are a, a wide variety of infections that can do this, uh, Epstein-Barr virus, Chlamydophila, uh, Lyme, uh, uh, probably being, uh, and herpes 6 virus uh, being the most uh, common. Uh, and then there's uh, more recognition that some of these uh, biotoxins, particularly related to some of the mold toxins, uh, can increase inflammation and symptoms uh, and may uh, cause someone to develop uh, neurologic symptoms uh, and inflammatory lesions in the brain that appear to look like MS. I've all, <clears throat> there's also uh, an observation that people have systemic autoimmune conditions, say inflammatory bowel disease, RA, 
systemic lupus. Uh, may, if you, at the time of diagnosis of their systemic autoimmune condition, if you scanned their brains, they may have silent inflammatory lesions in their brains. But because their uh, physical symptoms were first of their other autoimmune diagnosis, we make the diagnosis of inflammatory bowel disease or rheumatoid arthritis or lupus and say they have CNS involvement. Uh, and so there is likely considerable overlap in terms of the neuroinflammation that occurs, whether the primary symptoms start first in the brain or physically elsewhere in the body. Mm-hmm. And... Oh, one, one more thing. And, mm-hmm. and I, I should also add uh, two more things. Uh, there's increasing recognition that with uh, MS, uh, mitochondrial dysfunction is a big driver and likely mitochondrial dysfunction uh, is a, a key to the development of neurodegeneration and shrinkage of the brain volume, brain atrophy, which leads to the uh, fixed disability. Uh, And that inflammation levels systemically and in the brain are deeply connected to the microbiome, uh, gut dysbiosis, uh, leaky gut, um, uh, translocation of lipopolysaccharides or LPS. Uh, And so, you know, when I first started talking about this stuff 10 years ago, uh, my scientific colleagues, some of them, uh, you know, were on top of this. Many of the uh, clinicians really thought I was uh, very eccentric, very odd, and, and this was just crazy talk. But now uh, there's more and more recognition in the basic science and in the clinicians that are going to these basic science meetings that mitochondrial function is key, um, that uh, leaky gut is a real thing, uh, dysbiosis and microbiome is very important, and that the food we eat uh, it has a huge impact both on the microbiome and on gene expression. Mm-hmm. So people are catching up to us. It's right. very exciting to watch. Yeah, I'm just really glad that you said, uh, you know, leaky gut is a real thing because I get a lot of pushback on that as something that doesn't exist. And the microbiome is just a very hot topic right now. And we know that it's, it's just such a, an intimate connection with the microbiome and the immune system and the brain. Is there anything you wanted to add there regarding the microbiome? Oh, sure. What's coming out in the research? Oh, this, this is like so exciting. So, you know, the uh, first set of research that we did was we're basically uh, doing a census as well as we could at really a very crude level in terms of uh, how we could characterize the uh, bacteria. And as our science gets better and better, we can get closer and closer to identifying uh, uh, species material. Uh, But of course, and that's very important, lots of great insights. We know that we have a different community uh, between healthy and diseased folks. And this can be uh, uh, some regional differences, uh, whether you're from Asia or Africa or the Americas or Australia. and now we're getting uh, to the next level, which is looking at the whole uh, DNA of, or RNA of the microbes 
uh, to get much more specific as to uh, what species uh, are, are where. Uh, but uh, our bacteria, our microbes, uh, swap genes all the time. And so even though you may know the species, it still doesn't tell you necessarily how they're impacting, how we can run the chemistry of life. We think that that information is probably much more closely linked to the microbial metabolites. That is how these species are digesting our food and digesting each other's byproducts and these small molecules that, trans that uh, get into our bloodstream then and into our brain. That's what really is driving or supporting uh, helpful biochemistry or harmful biochemistry. And so now studies are looking at uh, the microbial DNA, the microbes themselves, the microbial metabolites as well. And so uh, much more detailed information. To analyze and understand all of that, we need to have uh, really sophisticated big data capability in terms of the stats. And this is where I think uh, artificial intelligence will uh, greatly speed our understanding. Uh, so it's a very exciting area. Hmm. Um, and you know, as we get better and better at handling big, big data, um, our, our insights into the role of uh, the microbiome will just continue to grow. Mm -hmm. Let's get into some specifics of, of the diet. So a lot of my listeners are, are going to be pretty familiar with uh, a paleo diet and even the autoimmune paleo diet. Can you talk a little bit about, you know, how similar the WALS protocol is? Oh, sure. The diets or are there any differences? You know, um, what I, uh, you know, I really am very, very fond of the paleo diet. Uh, but I have to remind everyone that the paleo diet was not enough to recover me. Uh, in 2002 is when I adopted the paleo diet. Uh, and even the autoimmune protocol as envisioned by Lauren Cordain. So I'd taken all, out all grains, all legumes, all dairy, uh, and had gone down that path and continued to decline. Uh, you know, I added vitamins and supplements, and I'd continued to decline. Uh, it, it was when, and the paleo diet often focuses on what to remove, but doesn't really focus on what to consume and how to maximize nutrition uh, for your brain and mitochondria. Uh, and so what I've done with the WALS protocol is to, you know, use the basic science that I could access. And that was back in 2007 to redesign the paleo diet, uh, still leaving out grains, legumes, dairy, uh, and focusing on what to add. Uh, and that was much more important. Uh, and so it's much, much more vegetables. Uh, I, constru I limited uh, the meat so I could get all the vegetables in that I wanted. Uh, I ramped up the greens uh, for the carotenoids, the vitamin K, magnesium, uh, which is really powerful for your brains. Uh, vitamin K1 in particular from those greens. Uh, more and more research coming out how important that is for making myelin and how important that is for uh, retina. Uh, and of course, mineralization of your teeth and bones. Uh, ramped up the uh, cabbage, onion, mushroom family uh, because that really improves your ability to detoxify uh, and uh, make intracellular glutathione and make uh, some key neurotransmitters 
uh, gamma aminobutyric acid, which is uh, a key uh, calming uh, neurotransmitter uh, that protects you from excitotoxicity. And then uh, the mushrooms, very good for boosting natural killer cells, uh, boosting uh, adaptive and innate uh, immune cells, and also boosting nerve growth uh, cell factors. Mm-hmm. And then the deeply pigmented, uh, uh, very high in polyphenols. We have many, many studies showing the benefits here for uh, all-cause mortality, lower cancer risk, uh, lower mental health issues, lower diabetes, obesity. Uh, but for, from my point of view, what's really compelling about the color is that many studies showing that they are uh, neuroprotective, that even in a relatively short time frame, 16 to 24 weeks, studies using, uh, these are randomized controlled studies using equivalent of one cup of blueberry powder resulted in measurable improvement in cognition. Mm-hmm. So you, know, you, you might think of the Wallace diet as, uh, taking uh, the paleo diet and then uh, sort of combining that with the insights from uh, um, uh, the high vegetable intake. Because uh, our ancestors would have had 200 different plant species in a year. Mm-hmm. That would have been very low glycemic index. Uh, they episodically would have had meat, but not always. Uh, and so, uh, and it was when I dialed back the meat dialed up the vegetables in a very specific way that I had this dramatic uh, improvement in function and strength. Uh, and that, this is what I, uh, I've observed in my clinics, uh, both in my primary care clinic, the track brain injury clinic, and now uh, my own private clinic that is uh, much more focused on autoimmunity. Mm-hmm. Right, because when a lot of people think of the, the paleo diet or autoimmune paleo diet, they see it as a, a very, very restrictive diet. It's, you know, a lot of people think it's just meat and vegetables. And it sounds like you've just gone a little bit deeper, added in a lot more variety and, and adding in a lot more different types of, of plant-based foods, like you said, the mushrooms. And then yes. even uh, you've talked about organ meats. And- yeah. So, uh, so we, we talk about, uh, I want people to have uh, liver uh, once a week or twice a week, um, a heart, uh, gizzards, tongue. Uh, kidneys, uh, bone broth. We talk about fermented foods. I talk about seaweed. Uh, and, I, and I stress variety, variety, variety. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, the, the, I know many folks, I mean, and I really love the paleo diet, but I know many folks who interpret the paleo diet to be meat and occasional vegetables. Mm-hmm. Uh, that 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 will create a, a different problem with uh, elevated uh, rates uh, of mammalian target of rampamycin uh, and higher uh, risks for uh, benign and cancerous uh, tumors, and it still leaves you with a very high insulin level, uh, very high insulin-like growth factor level, uh, which can uh, increase the risk for uh, dementia and uh, neurodegeneration. Mm-hmm. So. Occasional uh, bouts of a higher protein, I, I think, are good for us. But day in, day out, uh, high protein uh, does have some health risks as well. Mm-hmm. So I've, I've been asking, you know, some of the best minds in, in functional medicine to 
to see if they have a good idea of why some people end up getting worse on these types of diets, like a paleo diet or, oh, or AI. Oh, absolutely. Do you think it's yes. uh, mainly the microbiome or, or what do you think? Well, you know, I, I think there will be a time when we can get uh, our, our genes, our microbial genes and metabolites analyzed and get a report back that will tell me I will do, I will do the very best on a uh, high-fat ketogenic diet. I will do the best on a high monounsaturated fat, so uh, lots of olive oil uh, uh, diet. I would do better on a low-saturated fat, higher-carb diet. Um, and so uh, uh, there are, is considerable variation in our genes and my uh, risk for food sensitivities. There is considerable variation in how we metabolize fat and the, in, our, in our genes. And then, of course, this is further amplified by the variation in our microbial genes, mm-hmm. which is part of you know, why I, I tell people that uh, my message is a public health message. So they still have to work with their personal physician uh, to monitor their response. And the, the food plan that I talk about may have to be further modified based on their clinical response. Mm-hmm. Let's, uh, let's just give a little love to our, the vegans and the vegetarians out there. Oh, you know, yeah. Yeah, we've, we've seen them in, in practice. Uh, and sometimes it's, it's kind of clear that, that there are some issues there with B12 or iron and protein and sulfur-containing amino acids and, and things like that. So how do you work with, say, an ethical vegan oh, absolutely. or vegetarian? So my, um, uh, one of my research assistants in my clinical trial, my first trial uh, is a vegetarian, actually a vegan because of her religious beliefs. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so uh, I certainly am not going to uh, dispute or challenge her spiritual needs, but I did work with her to address her uh, eating plan and to optimize that so she could maintain her spiritual beliefs and have great brain health. Uh, And that's part of why when I wrote my book, I I realized that I wanted to give guidance to vegetarians and vegans, how they could still maintain their um, spiritual beliefs and further optimize their diet. Uh, I, I gave Guidance, guidance to the paleo folks, how they could further optimize their diet. And then for the folks who have, have a lot of benefits from being in ketosis, uh, and, and depending on your medical issues, there may be a huge benefit for being in ketosis. I gave guidance to them mm-hmm. uh, how they could uh, uh, approach ketosis and maximize nutrient density, uh, reduce the risk of uh, microbiome disruption, and hormonal uh, imbalance. Uh, uh, and of course, this meant, in some sense, you know, I, I really annoyed the uh, paleo folks because I said, yes, you can be vegetarian health and be healthy. Mm-hmm. I really uh, annoyed the uh, ketogenic folks because I said, well, there are some potential hazards of ketosis, uh, but here's how you would deal with that. Uh, and, and I think anytime any of us have the feeling that you're individual eating plan is the only one, the only way that people can be healthy, that person is wrong. Mm-hmm. Uh, we, we can have good health 
and we can ruin our health if we adhere to a, a particular eating doctrine, but do not pay attention to how it affects ourselves or our, our patients because we're all unique and we may need to have that eating plan adjusted. And it is possible to do this as a vegetarian, a vegan, uh, a ketogenic eater, a meat eater. And it's also possible to wreck your health in each of those ways if you aren't paying attention. Mm-hmm. Right. And one of the things that, that happens in practice when we're working with people is we always want to be sure that the spouse is on board, the rest of the family, because uh, if they're not, it, it can be very difficult. And sometimes a big, a big change in diet can be very stressful to an individual. And if, if a diet is going to create more stress, then it's not a good diet, you know, no matter how, how good it is. So what is your advice to the, to the practitioners out there and, and the patients about really getting the rest of the family on board? So in my uh, clinics at the VA and uh, in my private practice, I have the uh, patient and their uh, family come in together so I can educate the patient and the family about uh, the, the rationale and the mechanisms by which diet and lifestyle. Then we have a conversation about their, <clears throat> excuse me, their spiritual beliefs, health issues, uh, and uh, develop a plan for a dietary approach that the family could agree to as a family. Uh, and uh, sometimes this might be that there's no gluten or dairy in the house, uh, and the spout, the individual might need to go on a more uh, restrictive diet, uh, but the, the most, uh, such as a ketogenic diet or an elimination diet on top of that. Uh, but they, they sort of work out what the ground rules as a family will be, and you do this as a family. Uh, what is very clear is the people who do one diet that's different from the family have huge struggle. Uh, they're much more likely to uh, intermittently keep eating the foods that will be harmful to them uh, and uh, keep up their levels of inflammation, continue to have a lot of symptoms uh, and struggle. Uh, but if they can do this as a family, if they can get the, if they have children, get the children involved with helping with menus, helping uh, prepare the food, uh, that often makes it much more acceptable as a family. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, and then I uh, do a lot of work with the resilience factors. Uh, what do they want their health for? Why do they want to go on this health journey? Uh, and uh, we have a number of exercises that we do uh, in our clinic, uh, and that I take people through in this seminar because. You got to grow the internal resilience. You have to grow the internal motivation to do this work because ad- advice alone doesn't create change. The change has to come from within the person uh, and within the family. And so I, I've come to appreciate uh, the motivational interviewing, helping people with the resilience factors is uh, uh, some of the most important work that I do with patients. Mm-hmm. The last topic I wanted to discuss is chronic pain. And I just, I'm bringing it up because conventional medicine has just completely failed with chronic pain. And we have the opioid crisis. It's pain is, I think it's still the number one reason why people go to the doctor. So the, the walls protocol, it, it can help uh, chronic mm-hmm. pain. So can you talk about oh, yeah. how it does that? 
You know, uh, when I uh, set up the therapeutic lifestyle clinic at the VA, I went to the pain clinic and the primary care clinics and, and invited them to send us uh, their people with uh, the most troublesome pain issues uh, that were the most difficult. I said, we won't be dealing with um, changing their meds. Uh, so we'll send uh, them back to you for medication changes. They need to know that we're just going to use diet and lifestyle. Uh, and people uh, got sent to us with pain from a wide variety of causes, uh, neuropathies, um, diabetic neuropathies, small fiber neuropathies, uh, residual phantom pain after amputations, and then, of course, uh, from autoimmune issues, uh, fibromyalgia, lupus, RA. Uh, and uh, MS, uh, and we'd put them on on the diet, uh, uh, have them begin a stress-reducing practice, and get a step counter. And very consistently, when people came back for their first follow-up in four to six weeks, they would tell us this was the first time they began. They were feeling hope because their pain was less severe. Uh, and, and because the VA has a electronic medical record, we're able to go back and take a look at uh, what happened with these folks. Their need for and their use of narcotic medication steadily declined. And it was very common people would get off, were able to get off entirely all of their narcotics. Uh, it, and they also had less need for blood pressure meds and diabetic meds uh, as well. How did this happen? I think the biggest drivers for uh, pain have to do with uh, inflammation, oxidative stress, uh, uh, which uh, increase the reactivity uh, uh, of the nerve, um, of uh, the transmission of uh, nervous impulses, uh, and lower the threshold to pain. So by reducing the inflammation, uh, and reducing that oxidative stress, uh, increasing the intracellular glutathione, increasing the intracranial uh, gamma aminobutyric acid, uh, was very, very helpful. Mm -hmm. Excellent. So I mentioned the Walls Protocol seminar in the beginning, and that takes place every August. Can you tell everyone a little bit more about that? Sure. So uh, we, it's uh, basically three days. Um, uh, I do a lot of talking. I have some guest lecturers. Uh, we have a beginner's track, an advanced track. We practice skills in all of this. Um, and so for the public, this is a great way to get basically a group uh, consult for uh, functional medicine. We take you through your timeline of health issues. Uh, we uh, take you through an interpretation of your symptoms, you know, which big organ uh, sy uh, systems are affected and help you identify which are likely the best interventions for you to focus on. Uh, and then we train you on uh, the various levels of the Walls diet. Uh, we train you on strategies to grow your internal motivation and resilience factors. Uh, and we'll train you on detoxification strategies, on stress reduction strategies, uh, this year, we're going to have a big focus on uh, exercise and movement. We're going to be dancing and singing together. Uh, so uh, that's, uh, and we'll have some primal play as well. Um, so that will be very exciting. And the advanced track, uh, we'll be talking more uh, about the microbiome, 
uh, about some uh, more of the latest research on uh, what's going on in the MS and autoimmune world, uh, and more on uh, uh, neurodegeneration uh, and on mood disorders. Uh, I'll be talking more about uh, cognitive uh, issues in um, cognitive rehab. Uh, at, we have a mixture of uh, public life folks uh, and some health clinicians who are coming and will stay extra additional time uh, for additional training, get certified as Walls Protocol health professionals. Uh, I anticipate we'll have over 300 people here uh, this year. Um, uh, and because that's all that my hotel can hold, uh, we do have uh, a virtual ticket as well so that people can get access to the recorded uh, videos uh, from the event. Uh, but that would be, um, so all those details are on my uh, website. Uh, we, we certainly have had many folks who are health professionals who've had to quit their professions because of their health challenges, discover the WALS protocol, begin to get their health back, and are now reimagining their professional role uh, using the WALS protocol, uh, either in dentistry or as health coaches or you know, in their chiropractic uh, uh, area. Uh, and they're uh, so excited uh, to be uh, part of this uh, transforming community. Mm-hmm. Fantastic. And, and, and actually, we've changed the dates. Uh, it's in July, July 24th through 27th this year. Okay. We had to, we had to move into July. Okay. So the book is The Walls Protocol, and then there's The Walls Protocol Cookbook. And is there anything else you'd like to mention to the listeners about oh. where to find you online? Anything else? Sure. You know, there, there are a couple more great resources for the listeners. In particular, uh, we have a one-page diet uh, handout that summarizes uh, the key parts of the diet. It's a great thing to put in your refrigerator. If uh, you go to Walls Protocol, pardon me, terrywalls.com forward slash diet, uh, you can uh, pick all of that up. Uh, and that's really very nice. Oh, <clears throat> excellent. Excellent. Yeah. And so your website is, is terrywalls.com and then Terry Walls on Facebook, Dr. Terry Walls on Twitter. And excellent. All right. Well, thanks for coming on, Dr. Walls. I really appreciate this. I'm sure the listeners do as well. And I'll be posting a full transcript of this on drhedberg.com with links to everything we talked about today. So thank you again, Dr. Walls. Appreciate it. This is excellent. Thank you so much. All right. Well, take care, everyone. Thanks for tuning in and I will talk to you next time. Take care. If you enjoy the Dr. Hedberg Show, you can support it by sharing each episode on your social media channels, like Facebook, and by leaving a review on iTunes. Please visit drhedberg.com. That's D-R-H-E-D-B-E-R-G.com to access the show notes and resources for today's episode.